Okay, welcome to the Story of the Buddha podcast, episode one, chapter one. Uh, if you missed the introduction episode, this is a chapter-by-chapter breakdown of the story of the life of the Buddha, as told through the fantastic book, Old Path, White Clouds, by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, and as I mentioned in the introduction, if you if you don't read along, um, it, 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 I'd like for it to be kind of a book club style, of course, but uh, if I think you can enjoy the podcast just as much. Um, if you're not reading along, if you just wanted to kind of, if you're new to... Um, you know, wanting to learn about the the life of the Buddha, a little more about Buddhism, um, his story, which is really kind of the other thing I really enjoy about this book is it's more the 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 Buddhist story instead of just in these certain quotes or passages or um, maybe you've heard a fragment of the story or have a general idea. This is sort of told in a broad story context. So. Uh, and as I mentioned also, I'm going to come up with a different theme for each chapter of the story. Um, and if you are reading along, I'd love to know if you want to email me. Uh, I'd love to know what you uh, came up with maybe as a personal theme uh, uh, that may be uh, different from mine. So um, anyway, the, the theme I came up with for this first chapter, which is, which is titled Walking Just to Walk, it's our introduction chapter to uh, the Buddha and, and, and a few other main characters. And I chose the theme of the hero's journey. Because not only are we starting the hero's journey um, for the Buddha, we'll also see that it's sort of a journey for uh, another character. Uh, and it's a little bit of a variation on the traditional hero's journey, which I really like. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that idea, it's, uh, it was popularized by Joseph Campbell's work in comparative mythology. Um, it, it's essentially this, this idea that there's this certain story arc that you will get um, sort of across cultures and across different uh, periods in history, different genres uh, of story, you will get kind of this, this pretty similar, kind of eerily similar in some ways, um, storyline, and and I don't recall all the steps of the of the hero's journey, but it's basically this sort of full circle uh, path. One of the early ones being like you get a call to adventure. Uh, you know, there's sort of this uh, struggle and strife going on in the beginning with a, usually a main character, and they kind of go through this journey of trials and tribulations. They usually have certain uh, guides by their side as they go along. To sort of uh, lead them along the path in their journey, they sort of uh, slay the dragon, overcome whatever obstacles are in the way, and come back full circle, kind of at a different level, or you know, uh, uh, essentially kind of a higher being. So later in this story, we're gonna get a, a, the a, a, I think one of the my favorite examples of the hero's journey, which is the Buddha's story, you're going to get his sort of call to adventure and a decision a bit later in the story that that's kind of the, of when he changes from being a prince of a, of a village, a town in Northern India uh, over about 2,600 years ago. And he goes from that, the son of a king to the Buddha this awakened one, this spiritual leader 
that literally changes the world. So it's a fascinating, later we're going to get that. But initially here in this chapter, I think you get a variation of a hero's journey, um, which we're going to dive into. So, so as the book starts, we're getting introduced to um, not only the Buddha, but also another main character, Savasti, who's the buffalo boy who's going to be kind of a figure throughout. And what I really like about that is it's kind of uh, dual journeys. You get the hero's journey of the beginner, kind of child, student, uh, novice of Savasti, and you also get the master, teacher um, journey of the Buddha. So I like that you get the, a couple of versions of uh, variations or kind of uh, dual journeys going on at the same time. Which is always makes for a better story. Um, and the hero's journey, by the way, you will see that, you know, I guess a way to look, like you'll see it, like I said, all throughout history and in modern literature, uh, maybe a, maybe like in pop culture now you would see it, um, you know, maybe in some of the superhero movies or you see it in Harry Potter where they kind of you go through this, they, they, they overcome this struggle and strife, this call to adventure you know, going through these different trials and tribulations and they come back hopefully a stronger, better person um, to share with their community kind of all that they've learned in a sense. So you got, you know, maybe from Star Wars, like Luke Skywalker, like I said, Harry Potter, Bilbo Baggins from uh, The Hobbit uh, story. It's those kind of archetype characters. And uh, and I got, I just felt that vibe as as this chapter uh, went on uh, as my theme. So, and so when we open the chapter, Savasti is being ordained as a monk under the Buddha. So at this point in the story, the Buddha's middle aged He sort of started his uh, community or sangha, and uh, has I think at this point like four hundred disciples, four hundred monks, uh, um, in his community, and I think he's traveling in the story at the beginning here with, I think, 40, if I remember, um, 40 monks, and they're going back, and, and what we find out is now uh, Savasti, the Buffalo Boy, is about 21 years old, and he was promised 10 years before. Uh, the Buddha promised him he would come back when he had sort of found the way, you know, early on when the Buddha was sort of beginning his journey to find the way. He promised... 10 or 11 year old Savasti, I'll come back one day. Uh, and because Savasti had expressed interest in, in following the Buddha. And he made that promise and he returned. So this is when he comes back. He's, he's come to um, fulfill that promise, which is a really cool part of the story. Right off, right off the bat, you see the Buddha sort of honoring his commitments. And, uh, and he has found the way now. So you see, you get a little bit of the early community of the Buddha, as far as the ordination uh, ceremony for Savasti, a little bit of that, uh, uh, we're going to get a lot more into that later, but you get that, um, a little bit of background there. Um, you find out that when Savasti first met the Buddha, their first meeting is kind of two of our main characters here. Uh, when, when Savasti was around 11, you find out that both of his parents had recently died. And he has three younger siblings. So here he is, this buffalo boy, um, now in charge of taking care of his three younger siblings at age 11, which is just crazy to think about. And um, 
So he's the leader of the family. And you also find out that Savasti is what they call an untouchable. And just to give you kind of a brief background here, so this is 2,600 years ago, northern India. There's very much a, uh, a class system, uh, very rigid. And uh, I believe there's four main classes, and I don't recall them off the top of my head. We'll get more into that later, I think. And the untouchables are literally below all of those classes. Uh, and they're called untouchables because literally you they were not allowed to touch those of a higher class. They were considered kind of the lowest of the low. And we'll get a little more of that backstory later, but the Buddha sort of... Um, right off the bat is kind of this rebellious figure because when he first meets Savasti as an 11-year-old boy, he doesn't adhere to those rules. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see a little bit of that backstory later. So, uh, yeah, so you find out Savasti's an untouchable. And, um, and now being sort of thrust in to be ordained as a monk under the Buddha, is you get this... This is also sort of a journey, a transition period, because as a part of this monastery, as a monastic, he has a new brotherhood, a new sisterhood uh, later, and he basically now is in a community of equality and sharing. And they even mention this in the chapter, which I really like, the sharing of the food. They do their begging rounds, and they all share the food. The Buddha and all of the disciples are all, all kind of wearing the same tattered clothes. They've basically taken a vow of poverty, um, but what's different about that poverty is it's voluntary poverty as opposed to involuntary poverty. So the, the Savasti, the buffalo boy, was thrust into involuntary poverty, having to take care of his family, barely making it. And then it's an interesting transition to now he's ordained as a monk, a novice, and now everybody's kind of, there's an egalitarian feel to it that now we're all going to share and there isn't this rigid class system, which is really one of the most groundbreaking, rebellious, uh, amazing acts that the Buddha uh, performs and sort of uh, his, his mindset is just so different and ahead of the time for the time he's living in. And it's why the Buddha and, and like the historical Christ figure are such powerful archetypes because they literally were these it was like a peaceful rebellion, you know, a nonviolent rebellion, but the strongest kind of rebellion because it was about peace and love and unity and breaking down some of those ancient discrimination uh, or class systems um, very much in that time period. So that's a fascinating thing, and, and we'll, we'll dig more into that. Um, and yeah, it's also, I think, a different kind of hero's journey because what you're also seeing, and, and some of those, like I mentioned, some of the stuff from pop culture, a lot of the traditional, um, a lot of the traditional hero's journey stories are an individual uh, oftentimes. And what you're getting here is it's sort of an individual going on his adventure, and you certainly were going to get that with the Buddha. But what I like here is it's also a bit different because it's now about a community. You know, it's really about what they call sangha and a community. Um, it's not just about one person. So I like that that's sort of right out of the gates. It's about this community and some of the uh, um, 
rituals and ceremonies that have to do with community and sort of dissolving that idea of a separate self, which is a big aspect of, of, of Buddhist thought, uh, the idea of dissolving the ego and dissolving the, the idea of a permanent self, an idea of a separate self, a self that's uh, uh, not connected to others. And, and especially in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, um, you get a lot of that where it is about interconnectedness. And uh, you get a, a little feel for that early on here. And by the way, before I get too far along, just a couple things. Uh, number one, I'll probably uh, refer to the Buddha as the Buddha, but also as Siddhartha. Siddhartha Gautama was the name he was born under as a, like I said, a prince in northern India. And we're going to get that backstory, but just as I'm talking, I may refer to him as Siddhartha or the Buddha. It's the same person if you're new to the story. Savasti is the buffalo boy, just so we get clear on that as I'm kind of rattling all this off. Um, And also, a real quick note as we get started, I don't know actually how much of this story, of this book, Old Path, White Clouds, how much creative license, I don't don't know if Thich Nhat Hanh took a fair amount of creative license with this story. Um, especially like Savasti, the Buffalo Boy. I don't know how much of that is just sort of a, a, a plot device to put the story in kind of a nice package, which it is. I think it's, like I said, it's a very easily digested version of the story of the Buddha. Um, but the beautiful thing about it is, and really Buddhism in general, is it doesn't really matter as much how historically or scientifically accurate the story is. It's really more about the message behind the story and these practices that are kind of tried and true. Um, and I really like that. I mean, I re- I've always thought of spiritual practice and religion or whatever you want to call it. That's more about, it should be at its best, is about a way to live your life. Um, I always think of science more as, as how the world is and what what is... Uh, what the world is made up of and how the world works. But I always think of, like I said, spiritual practice, religion, whatever your sort of um, deeper calling in that way is, whatever you want to call it, that's more about how to be in the world. That's how to be in the world, how to act in the world uh, at its best. Um, So I don't really think it matters too much if there was some creative license taken with the story. And that's, you know, I, I like that. It's refreshing. I don't think it really matters too much. I think a lot of the, during this time period, I mean, we're talking this story, you know, 500 years uh, or so uh, before the birth of Christ. You know, we're talking way back. And uh, I would imagine a lot of it was passed down the first few years through oral tradition. And, um, so, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like I always think of it this way, like, you know, uh, I guess sort of uh, judging religion or spiritual practice uh, with science is kind of like judging a musician with a math test. You know what I mean? Like if a, mu- if a musician or, or a, an artist moves you, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, it, it's, it doesn't matter what it is technically, you know what I mean? And I think of, at its best, again, there's plenty of problems in the world of religion and spiritual practice and 
but I think at its best, that's what it is. It's not, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, there's even a little, I don't know how, again, I don't know how historically accurate it is, but there's a little uh, story, I, I believe it may be a little bit later in this book, um, there's a story of the Buddha where the wise men of the time, the sort of religious scholars, if you will, of the time, I believe maybe the Brahmins, they go to visit this Buddha who's kind of the superstar. He's like the new kid on the block and he's, you know, he's sort of has this, he's building kind of this movement and popularity and they come to him with all these questions, like the big picture questions of life, you know, um, that actually we're still asking to this day, like, you know, how did the universe begin how is our world made? What happens after you die? Um, what is our meaning on this planet and this, that, and the other? And essentially, and I'm paraphrasing a great deal, but essentially the Buddha's answer was, all those things are interesting, but I only teach suffering and the transformation or end of suffering. I'm only about sort of, let's get down to brass tacks. Like, here, it doesn't matter, even let's say you had all the answers to the universe, the big questions. If you're miserable and suffering in your life and inside your mind more specifically, in your heart, in your gut, I mean, that, that it, it doesn't matter if you have all those answers. You know, and I think of like the tortured scientist or tortured artist who, you know, maybe they do have some of the answers of the universe, but a lot of them you, you would see throughout, you know, history have, you know, they're, 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 they're suffering greatly, you know, which is really interesting to me. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that all out there in the beginning before we dig deeper into the story. Um, but anyway, back to the chapter. Again, it was a pretty, these chapters are pretty quick and they're in there's, they seem almost simple. Some of it seems kind of simple, um, but I love Thich Nhat Hanh for this because he makes these very profound, it's like simple yet profound. And what one of the reasons I wanted to do this exercise is as you dig a little deeper and dissect it and deconstruct it a bit more, you can, you can glean more from it. And, and that's what I really like about this exercise. And I hope some of you kind of come along with me uh, and, and do that with me. So as you read along. So um, okay, so uh, again, hero's journey. Uh, one of the other things I liked is Savasi, as he sort of breaks it to his younger siblings that he's leaving. They give him their blessing as long as he comes back to visit. Uh, his the next oldest sibling, just, you know, agrees to take care of the family, um, and I really like that little part because. If you've ever, I'm sure we've all been there where someone you love or someone you're close to makes a decision that's not easy, that doesn't necessarily, it's not the best for you, or they're going to go away, and you just have to go with it. You know, you have to uh, respect it and accept it and um, support them, and, and it's just a, I don't know, it's a great reminder that that's what we should do if, if someone has something in their heart uh, that they want to go for. Uh, even if we're not a big fan of it. Um, so I like that part. Um, and also, they so as Savasti sort of says his goodbyes and he leaves, 
there's a we get a little introduction also and again this is where it seems simple like not much is going on but there if you if you if you dig a little deeper i i, I got a little bit out of this where they're walking towards this town uh more populated uh once they once savasti kind of joins the group and they're walking and this is you know there's no subways or no uber drivers around no um bicycles nothing yeah so they're walking and they're walking and this is sort of a uh for the audience the reader an introduction to the practice of walking meditation which is emphasized in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition to this day uh or sometimes it's called uh, if you hear me call it the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition or the Plum Village tradition it's the same thing and what I like about his tradition, among many things, is is they do emphasize the walking meditation, and it's it's often a exercise practice that's overlooked. Um, I've been on a fair amount of meditation retreats, and you'll end up doing a lot hours and hours, especially silent retreat. You'll do hours and hours of sitting, formal sitting meditation practice. But you also, to kind of break that up a bit, you'll do rounds of walking meditation. And it can sometimes be seen as kind of taking a break from like, like you know, like your formal sitting practice is the real practice. And then sitting or walking meditation is sort of a break. But it can also be a very profound practice. And I've, I've kind of like the last retreat I went on, I got a little deeper into it, uh, sort of really concentrating on the bottom of my feet as sort of the object of my meditation. And that really brought it, you know, taking these slow, you're basically taking these slow uh, methodical steps with as much attention as you can and uh i don't know i just like that they threw that in there you know Thich not han threw that in the chapter uh and, and it was this really interesting juxtaposition because there's this simple slow mindful walking and they're walking into this sort of busy city a, a busy town and it was just an interesting juxtaposition because Everyone, I got the idea as I was reading it that there may be scrambling around, and the city is kind of a bustling, and you get this these this group of monks in these very um, you know plain sort of tattered clothes, and they're walking very slowly and mindfully. It must it's just interesting to think of that visual of how peaceful and interesting that must have been to have this kinetic energy, and then you see sort of the the opposite of that. And I think it's a great reminder for modern times. I mean, modern society, I mean, it's this, it is a hustle and bustle and it is frantic at times. And it's just this beautiful reminder to just slow down. I mean, that, even me reading it, it was just a reminder to slow down and enjoy those little moments. And I think that's a big part of, when you talk about mindfulness, when you talk about meditation practice, um, when you talk about the story of the Buddha and what that could do for us, it's like a big message for me, even just starting to read the first chapter, slow down. And, uh, or even more specifically, stop and slow down, you know. So I really like that part of it. Um, we get a little introduction to monastic life and a few of the main characters. Like I said, Savasti, the Buffalo Boy, the Buddha, of course. Also Sariputta. Sariputta is uh, one of the head, uh, sort of right beneath the Buddha, one of his head uh, disciples, and, and will end up teaching a lot of the younger monks and nuns. Um, 
Also, the Buddha's son, Rahula, who's, I believe, 18 at the time, a few years younger than Savasti, and they become sort of fast friends, which is a cool connection. Uh, and we get that backstory a little bit later as well. Um, again, you get a little bit of Savasti's ordination ceremony, a little bit of the begging rounds, the, the meditation practice. Um, yeah, so you're gonna, we're going to dive a lot deeper into that as we go along, the, the, the monastic life and sort of the, the lifestyle and the steps to a mindful um, life that the Buddha you know, really lays out for us here. And really that, again, that idea of equality and sharing and, you know, just things that um, we're kind of in that culture of everybody trying to get ahead. And uh, I just like that. It's really about, you know, this uh, equanimity, uh, which is one of the, uh, I believe they're called the Brahma Viharas or the, or the loving abodes, which is these four sort of practices around kindness. Uh, I believe it's uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity being the last one. And you're already getting a little dose of that equanimity, you know, that Savasi's coming from this rigid class structure, like I said. Now you're getting into this monastic life that's very much about um, helping each other out, which is, you know, very much needed, I think, and, and, a, and a great lesson now um, to hear. Uh, but anyway, it, it's also... The big takeaway also for me here is just sometimes there's there's forks in the road, there's decision points in life, there's hard choices, uh, and that sometimes you need to take a risk. And you know you see that here a little bit with Savasti leaving his family, and you see it really a big example later when you see the Buddha's story of when he has that really that that fork in the road, that that uh, big decision of what to do with his life. He has sort of this. He has a complete shift, and we'll get into that's a very interesting uh, break. I want to break that down a lot in the later chapters as we get the Buddha's backstory. But again, you know, I, I'm sure we've all been there, right? When you have a hard choice in your life, you you feel something in your heart, in your gut, that you want to do it, but it's risky. You know, you have some fear building up, and that that sometimes, and a lot of times, is a good thing. You know, and I don't mean when you do something foolish. Or dangerous, but just that, that you have something in your heart that maybe is a risk, or maybe your society or your friends or family, your loved ones don't agree with it, don't understand it, but you go anyway. And I think that's, uh, I got a little bit of that in this chapter. Savasti seems a little nervous, a little scared. He's like, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Uh, we've all been there. I've, I've certainly been there. Um, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's uh, you know, I can recall even just, you know, when I did this, uh, I did a, this mindfulness teacher training last year uh, for, for about, it was a nine or ten month program, pretty intensive program, and I was nervous, I was scared, I was like, I'm in over my head, I don't, you know, who am I to teach someone any of this stuff, and, uh, and you know, I, I just remember showing up at the, we had the opening retreat up in Massachusetts, this was, and by the way, this was done through the Engage Mindfulness Institute, shout out, I love, a fantastic organization doing great work, um, working with at-risk and underserved communities, they're uh, sort of a, in conjunction with the Prison Mindfulness Institute, uh, working with uh, prison staff and inmates, uh, practicing mindfulness yoga, um, you know, teaching them trauma-based mindfulness tools to help 
uh, as they transition while also inside the prison, but also as they're uh, getting released. And just amazing work. And I wanted to just give them a shout out. But I was joining this program and I was I was intimidated. I was scared. But I also knew deep down this was a good thing, that this was going to really be a challenge, but very good for me. Uh, but I was scared. I mean, I showed up at the first retreat and, you know, there's all these amazing people that I, you know, uh, about 40 of us that did the the uh, the year-long program, and it was amazing, and I still am in touch with many of them, and, but I was, yeah, I was nervous, but it was like, man, that's, that's the kind of thing, that's like the most recent example I could think of, where you really, it's good to put yourself out there a little bit, as Savasti does here in joining the Buddha. So, that's it for the chapter. Um, what you'll find, by the way, with this book, it's kind of a long book, Old Path, White Clouds. I think it's like 500 plus pages, but very easily read. Um, like I said, very easily digested. And also, the chapters are really short. So there's a lot of chapters. I think there's like 80 plus chapters. I hope that doesn't like you know intimidate you. But they're very short chapters, which I like, so you can really dig in. And it's it makes it a little easier to read, I think. So... Um, yeah, so that's kind of chapter one. And what I want to do at the end of these, uh, each chapter, each episode, is a practice I've heard about. I think it actually originated in the uh, early Christian culture, early Christian church called Lectio Divina, which I believe is Latin for sacred reading. Um, and what I want to do, it's kind of an interesting exercise, and I want to kind of of, of do it to th- throw a little curveball in at the end of these episodes. Um, but basically, it's a, the practice of sacred reading, and the way I'm going to interpret it is I'm going to read a random passage from the chapter, and I'm not going to, I don't know what the, I'm just going to kind of flip through a page and, and, and point my finger and pick a, a passage at random, a sentence or two. And you're going to break down, it's kind of a mental exercise, so we're going to break down that, um, break down that, excerpt on four different levels. This is the sacred reading practice. So the first level, I'm going to break it down as just the literal meaning of the text. So what's going on in the story. Uh, The second level is what is the metaphor or symbolism that I take away from that um, passage. The third level is what does that passage call to mind from my past experience, uh, my personal experience, and then the fourth level is what's the takeaway of this passage for my future or in general as something I could like a, a, a that it reminds me to or recall calls me to do going forward in the future. So that's the four levels. So and again, I don't know what the passage is going to be from this chapter, but uh, and it may be you know, and sometimes it's a pretty you don't have a lot to work with, which is which is actually great. That's why it's an interesting exercise because. Um, it to me, it's similar to uh, mindfulness practice. When you're practicing mindfulness, when you're meditating, a common practice, especially to start out with, is following your breath. And you can think of mindfulness practice as doing sort of bicep curls or a workout for your mind, and especially in that kind of meditation. So... As you're sitting in, in, in uh, you're practicing, you're sitting in meditation, you're concentrating on the breath. You can concentrate on it, you know, the in and out breath that you're, 
you know, your chest, your nostrils, your mouth. I like to do it in my belly, uh, what they call in uh, yoga, the dantian. So sort of that uh, a few inches below your navel, really considered to be the center of your body. So I think it, it really helps to, uh, to have that as my focal point, uh, to concentrate on the in and out, the breath going in and out of my belly. It also just sort of creates for me a stability as I'm sitting in practice, sitting upright, um, nice solid posture, but that just sort of keeps it me grounded. And it also works to sort of keep you out of your head a little bit um, as you sort of focus your attention away from, from the, the head and the mind. Um, it's so much going on up there usually, probably too much going on up there usually. Um, but anyway, so what happens, you're, you're concentrating on your breath, and, and ultimately what happens is your mind starts to wander. And whether you're a beginner or you've been doing it for 30 years, this happens. This is always going to happen. Uh, it may not happen. It may happen more often at certain times than others. You may have certain times you're sitting in meditation and you, you rarely lose your focus, your concentration, uh, on the breath in this case, sometimes you'll lose, you know, 50 times, 100 times in a session, you'll, you just have to keep bringing that attention. So, so really the practice there is you notice your attention, your mind has wandered, your attention has been lost, and you just very gently um, label that, if you like, and then bring that attention back to the breath. So it's almost like, think of it as doing like push-ups or bicep curls. You're doing repetitions. So a lot of people, when they start meditating, they think they're not good at it or they're doing it wrong. Or if their mind keeps wandering or if it, their mind is a jumbled mess or scattered, that they're somehow bad at it. But actually recognizing that your awareness has shifted is actually a, a, a win. It's actually a great thing. It's actually progress. It's, that is the practice. I mean, if you have to begin again a hundred times in the course of one sitting, that is the practice. And that's a good thing. And you're, 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 you're flexing that muscle, that mindfulness muscle to bring that attention back and not let these stories of the mind and these, these uh, you can get off on, on, this, on this track and this, this one thought can grow into doing a grocery list that can grow into doing what I have to do next week and to growing into I'm frustrated with this person and this and it's just this dialogue mess and just this jumbled, um, you know, even chaos sometimes can, can ensue from one simple just, just letting it get off, off completely off course. So it's just that, that building that muscle of just, like I said, gently and, and, and while being friendly to yourself, bringing that attention back. And in the same sense, in the same sort of... Um, feel I would I want this sacred reading practice to be a bit of a mindfulness exercise to see if I can sort of pick apart a passage from the story and maybe glean again you know take a little more from it than initially done and that's really uh, inspired and one of the other reasons I want to do it it's inspired by mindfulness practice I mean mindfulness to me that practice is about it's a many things, but one of the things it's about to me is being able to tap into that present moment awareness and that, um, that uh, ha having a little bit more vibrancy for life, even the simple things. So it's not as much about the external stimulus going on. It's not so much about peak experiences. But if you think about those times in your life that you've had 
a, or that you feel like you're sort of in a flow state. As they say in psychology, they refer to it as flow state. If you are in athletics and sports, they'll call it being in the zone. But just those times in your life where you feel really good and you're focused and you're at peace and vibrant, you know, life has that, that juice, that zest, that energy, or what they call in yoga, the prana, that prana, that energy. When you have that, um, that's really what mindfulness practice can do is, is you know, you don't, you can, you can tap into that, that, res, that, that resonance that comes from that present moment awareness. You can tap into that in everyday life and simple things. And like I said earlier, taking a walk in breathing in, you know, having a, a, a cup of tea with a friend uh, or, or just, you know, very simple things. Even, you know, you can get to the point where you're, you have that sort of vibrancy, believe it or not, when you're doing laundry or washing dishes, believe it or not. I mean, you can. I mean, with, it, of course, takes some practice, but it's possible. But anyway, I just, I, I wanted to break that down because, you know, it, it, you can... You can, I think a lot of times we look for the sensory overload, the sensual sensual pleasures, the pleasures of the senses, you know, whether it's good food or maybe even intoxicants, whether it be drugs or alcohol or, um, you know, uh, sex or you name it, anything that's sort of, uh, you know, some people get it through addiction, through gambling, uh, and even some positive, let's say you get it through playing sports or you're a musician or a writer or a dancer or a poet, whatever gets you, you know, everybody kind of usually has one or two things at least that really they get into. And what I think of a mindfulness in some ways is being able to tap into that with more and more aspects of your life. Again, the simple aspects, driving in your car, taking a walk. Um, you know, just having a conversation with someone, all of these can be practices that lead to more that there's this quality that you're 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 getting a quality of life that's that stems from the internal, not the external. That regardless of what really goes on in the external, internally, you you have a lot of uh, autonomy and control to your well-being, and that's really what drew me to mindfulness practice. So. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead. I'm going to do this real quick to finish up here. So here's the practice, Lectio Divina. Let me pick a random, uh, let's see here. I'm just going to pick a random, let's see. All right. Rahula was asked to introduce Savasti to the ways of monastery life, how to walk, sit, stand, greet others, do walking and sitting meditation and observe his breathing. Okay, so first levels of uh, sacred reading, what's going on literally in the, the passage. So the, Rahula, as we remember, is the Buddha's son. Um, so he's basically, uh, like I said, but kind of became fast friends with Savasti. And he's also, since he's around his age, he's sort of... Um, showing him the ropes of mon monastic life as he begins. Uh, and like I said, Savasti kind of being the, the wide-eyed, uh, the newbie. You know, he's trying to figure out everything. So 
And you get kind of in that sentence, he's just sort of rattling off all the practices that a monastic, that a full-time spiritual practitioner would go through. Uh, so uh, just the, just the he's going through basically the um, really the role and duties and practices that a monastic or monk would go through. So that's the literal action. The second level of sacred reading is what's the metaphor or uh, analogy that this made me think of? Um, hmm. Think about that for a second. Um, I think it's, I don't know. It, it, it made me think of the importance of like, uh, uh, I don't know, of just having a good teacher or a guide. Um, I just recall, I mean, kind of what, it, I don't know, it makes me think of like if, um, I don't know, I just imagine like your, your, uh, your first day at a job, you know, or something like that, where you're just like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Everything is foreign to me. And I've, and I've started jobs like that or a new school. I mean, that's one that kind of pops in my head too, of just like, a, I just think of a kid starting at a new school. He's, he's from out of town. He's maybe starting halfway the, through the school year, doesn't know anybody. And someone was nice enough to be a, you know, and especially, it was especially good, I think, if you had another student do this. Um, and I recall doing this at a really young age. I think I was third or fourth grade, and the teacher just designed me to help this kid, this new kid, um, to show him around the school and the class, and he was really shy, and, you know, I grew up in the same town my whole life, so, but I think I was like third or fourth grade, but I just, I don't know, that just popped in my head, but just in general, just that, you know, being at a, at a new job or a new school, not knowing what the hell you're doing and having someone, uh, thankfully, a, a kind of a guide by your side to, to use the hero's journey theme again, but having a guide to sort of walk you through it and how much easier it would be, how much easier that is as opposed to maybe we've all been in the other scenario where you're, you're new to something and you're just like, they just throw you in the deep end and you do not have any guidance, so... Um, that's what comes to mind first. Uh, and the third level of Lectio Divina is, what does this recall from my, from my past? Um, I kind of just used one, but to think of another, um, I remember I did, uh, I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a few years ago, and I, and I, I enjoy martial arts, and but I, I'm, I haven't really done them. I enjoy watching like martial arts and things, and I grew up like enjoying it. But um, didn't practice it really. Um, I did a little bit of karate when I was a little little kid. But but a few years ago, I decided I really wanted to try jujitsu, uh, which is sort of the submission grappling uh, you maybe see in like mixed martial arts and the UFC. And um, I've always been kind of fascinated by it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I went to a gym locally, and I just remember being pretty scared, like nervous, like, what the heck? I mean, I'm going to get choked unconscious or I'm going to get my butt kicked. And I just remember uh, there was a guy there who sort of showed me the ropes, and he sort of like said, hey, you know, he could tell I was a little nervous, and he just made me feel at ease. And he showed me all these practices, and it, and it reminded me of that in this passage because... They rattle off all these different things, you know, how to walk, how to sit, how to stand, how to greet others, how to do walking and sitting practice, how to observe his breathing, uh, this monastic life. And I just remember, I remember being sort of 
in the same sense kind of overwhelmed with with all of the moves they were showing me and all of the sort of protocol and the rules of the of the uh of the gym and you don't do this and this is where you do that and and I just remember my and I'm sure we've all been there right where your head is just spinning so that kind of recalled that uh, for me and then the last level the fourth level lectio divina uh what's the takeaway from this passage and and I would say um I would say it's the kind of inverse of that. The, the takeaway for me going forward in this would be if I'm ever, you know, in this case it's Rahula, the Buddha's son, if I'm ever asked, or even if I'm not asked, if I see someone, I'm on the inverse, if I see someone new to a group or new to an activity or new to an environment, this, this kind of calls me to, you know, be the one to step up and be that guide, right? Like I've had guides help me is I think to, to sort of be mindful of someone who may be in that situation, who maybe feels a little vulnerable, right? And uh, you can tell a lot of times in their body language and their mannerisms and, and being able to come to them with sort of a, and be able to really calm them uh, with your presence, uh, which is another really big takeaway in general for mindfulness practice and meditation is if you work on yourself and are able to do that, that really does rub off on people. It really does resonate with others, and it's palpable, you know. And, and real quick, I'll just tell you, as a part of that teacher training I did last year, one of the key aspects right out of the gates, our head teacher said, you know, I kind of went in thinking we're going to learn all these teaching tools, and of course we did, but right out of the gates, the first thing our head teacher said was this whole program, this whole teaching certification, this whole program, it has to be built on the foundation of your own practice. So you have to have your own practice uh, and, and be practicing consistently before you can really help anyone else. Um, not that you have to be this enlightened Zen master and all this, but just that you really need to have that be a focal point. Um, and then that resonates with others. It's not so much about what you say and what you do and... and your presentations or your teachings, of course, these are important. You're guided. You're, you're guiding them through meditations and things. But, but what's what's really crucial is your presence, you know, and that really shines through your practice and things like that. Um, and then that resonates uh, with others. So, um, and I think that's that's a that's a big thing. I think people recognize that in others. So anyway, I just think of like the idea of being able to help someone. Uh, I need to do some of that work myself. Uh, there's the one of my other big influences, Matthew Ricard, who's a, a, a Tibetan monk, um, a former scientist, Tibetan monk, a great writer. Um, he's written some of my favorite books, and he has sort of the analogy of like you know your practice being like you know imagine um, building a hospital. So before you can really help others, you have to have some foundation. You know, if you were to go to a town and, and you want to build a hospital to help others, well, one thing you could do is like immediately just put up a tent and try to help people. And that may help, you know, maybe have a few rudimentary tools and a tent and just sort of try to, you know, uh, help people on the streets. Um, maybe a little effective, or you can also try to build a state-of-the-art hospital with modern equipment and the best doctors and the best nurses and plumbing and electricity and 
and a, a, a solid structure and, and all these things that is really going to transform the town. So the metaphor there is our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice is like building a hospital that then you can help others even more because you've done the work on your hospital, in this case being your practice. Um, so again, that's, uh, this is why I love sacred reading because I go a little off, off subject, but it's fun because it opens up new sort of pathways in the mind and new ways to think about things. Um, but anyway, that is the chapter. That's chapter one. Um, I did go a little long, longer than I wanted to, but uh, yeah, so that's it. I'm also going to end it with a quote. I have a big collection of random quotes from you name it, movies, TV shows, podcasts, um, conversations I've had, conversations I've heard, books I've read about any and every subject. So what I'm going to do based on the theme I give for each chapter, I'm going to give the, um, a quote based on, based on my theme and this, 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 uh, this episode being the hero's journey. So my quote is from Ram Das, famous spiritual teacher. And his quote is, our journey is about being more deeply involved in life, yet less attached to it. And with that, I will leave you until the next episode.